Hello, I'm Michael Watson, joined by Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Title 42, an emergency policy allowing U.S. authorities to send border crossers back whence they came, usually Mexico, on public health grounds, is ending with the COVID-19 public health emergency. And with the Biden administration extremely lackadaisical, to put it mildly, in its approach to general immigration law enforcement, what does the end of Title 42 portend at the U.S.-Mexico border? Joining us today to discuss the end of Title 42 and her work investigating the role of nonprofit organizations in carrying out the Biden administration's near as makes no difference open border policy is Laura Reese, director of the Border Security and Immigration Center for the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Laura, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work for Heritage? Sure. I have been with Heritage for a little over three years now. I'm the director of the Border Security and Immigration Center uh, and also have uh, cover all of the Department of Homeland Security. I have worked at uh, DHS on two different uh, occasions, most recently as the acting deputy chief of staff. So just to set the backdrop, what is, or I'm not entirely sure exactly when it goes out of effect, but what is or was Title 42? So Title 42 is a public health authority um, controlled by the CDC. And it allows, when it is turned on, uh, border agents to quickly expel migrants back across the border. So CDC issued this authority in March of 2020 due to COVID. And the when the Biden administration came into office, uh, the left was um, strongly pressuring the Biden administration to end Title 42 because the left viewed it as a immigration enforcement tool. And really, it's about public health. So uh, the administration announced a year ago that it was going to end Title 42. Uh, it was tied up in court for a while, and now it is officially ending tonight, uh, right before midnight. Uh, it- so this, yeah, if, when this 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 podcast will release on Friday, so it will be the day of recording, which is Thursday into Friday, the day of release. <laughs> okay. So, so how does so I guess how did Title Forty Two, when it was in effect, change the procedure when either the Border Patrol or Customs encounters somebody who is either has crossed or is trying to cross the border without authorization? So it's a it was a faster tool for the border agents um, when you know COVID was at its height. The, the concern was not having people congregating either in facilities or in uh, buses or what have you. And so the border agents were able to turn someone back in really minutes uh, using Title 42. Now, when Title 42 isn't in place and Title 8, which is the immigration code, is what is being used, that takes hours for a border agent to do the paperwork and to put someone into removal proceedings. And so when you say put somebody into removal proceedings, does that mean, you know, the paperwork is filed, they get put in a car and driven back to the nearest point of entry or port of entry, or that they then have to like await a judge? Uh, It means that they are processed north. So into the U.S., they have a what's called a notice to appear piece of paper, which says report to this immigration court in this location on this date. 
but the immigration courts are so, their dockets are so backlogged, that date could be years out. And unfortunately, that is the game that many of these migrants play who are coming here for economic reasons rather than truly um, seeking persecution, per, uh, protection from persecution. And they know that if they say a few words of fear at the border, they will be given this piece of paper and allowed into the U.S., spend years here. Um, they find a job, even though it, you know that too is against the law to work without authorization. And then they put down roots here. And when they do finally see a judge, they argue, well, you can't deport me because I've been here too long and I have too many family ties here. Maybe they had a child in the interim, which is a, then a U.S. citizen. Yeah, who would then become a U.S. citizen. Uh, so the you mentioned the the fear uh so that gets into questions of asylum what what is asylum what separates it from normal international migration and why is it so problematic to administer so asylum and and seeking refugee protection is you have to prove the exact same thing the only difference between asylum and, and refugee is where you are physically located so if you are outside the U.S., you are applying for uh, to be considered a refugee or a refugee application. If you are at our border or inside the U.S., you are applying for asylum. But in both cases, you have to prove that either you have been persecuted or you have a well-founded fear of future persecution by your government on account of one of five grounds, your race, your religion, your nationality, your political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. And it's this last ground, membership in a particular social group, that's so problematic. It's very vague. It's never been defined. It was tacked on as kind of a catch-all by uh, the UN. And it's that ground that the left shoehorns in all kinds of circumstances, including being a victim of domestic abuse. You know, please tell me how that's membership in a particular social group or uh, general crime and violence, gang activity, and even climate change. And so when you apply for asylum, you have to tell your story, basically, what happened to you. And there are resources to go investigate that person's claim. So it basically comes down to the credibility of the alien, the applicant. And if they tell a credible story, then it can be granted. And uh, it's so, always... this, so this sort of system, this sort of system was created, it sounds like, for people like, let's say you're a Hong Kong democracy activist. And uh, obviously, you know, China, the Chinese Communist Party is cracking down on democracy activists in, in Hong Kong. Uh, you need to get out of there quick. Uh, you get out of there, you know, you get on a plane, you show up, you present yourself to a customs officer and say, you know, the Chinese are going to lock me up for my political beliefs. Uh, but that it's being sort of exploited as a general delaying tactic in immigration proceedings. That's absolutely right. Yes, it was created uh, right after post-World uh, War II. Uh, so people had you know, Nazi and con concentration camps in their mind. Um, the scenario that you give is much more appropriate than how it is being used. Um, and yes, it's being exploited a lot of fraud because it is low risk and high reward. Sarah, do you have any general questions or any any questions that you'd like to ask? Yes, general and specific. Thanks for coming on, Laura. I really appreciate you being here. Um, 
So just, you know, what's fascinating to me as I listen to you talk about this is that you're talking about a very complex system of allowing people to convince someone of their credibility under this, you know, list of potential reasons why they might be seeking a refugee status or asylum status. Um, And yet what we're seeing from news reports at the border is just mass chaos. And I can't imagine that there's any way to actually undertake this kind of delicate questioning and decision deciding of credibility. And I know that that has been something that people are wondering how the chaos happened. So I have a specific question about something you wrote about that you call the immigration industrial complex, which I want you to talk about second. But first, can you tell me how we got to this place where we see lines of people trying to come into the, into the Southern border, um, basically in defiance of this very delicate, precise um, program that we have set up down there. And what happens when Title VIII takes back over, I guess, on, on Thursday or Friday? Um, what does it look? Does it get more chaotic, less chaotic? What can people be thinking about this? Mm-hmm. Well, how we got here, uh, one easy event to pinpoint is was the uh, presidential debates uh, for 2020, during which Joe Biden said those people who are um, living in difficult conditions should come here and apply for asylum. Uh, he rang the bell and the smugglers and the cartels heard it and uh, used it as a marketing tool. And so before he even uh, entered office, the numbers were starting to increase. We saw people wearing T-shirts south of the border that said, Biden, let me in. I mean, it was... was You mentioned, quick one quick thing for people who may not be familiar, you mentioned the cartels. Uh, What are their role in actually getting people from, usually, as I understand it, it's Central America to the U.S.-Mexico border? And and into the U.S.? Yeah, so um, largely the Mexican drug cartels, which have uh, significant control over many parts of Mexico, uh, but operations in the U.S. um, and and farther south. So they have um, made quite a business model out of smuggling not just drugs, but people. And um, unfortunately, this administration has made them very wealthy. So... Yes, there is a seemingly unending stream of people starting from the Darien Gap in Panama, um, working their way up through Central America and Mexico to our border. And it, it, it is very coordinated and uh, it has become big business. So talk to me a little bit about that, the, Im- the immigration industrial complex. I am personally fascinated by the role just because of, you know, this is what we work on at Capital Research Center as we look at nonprofits and, and sort of political spending and policy spending. Um, and in a piece that you wrote, which we'll link when we put this podcast up, you talk about the immigration industrial complex and the billions, that it's worth billions. And one of the aspects of that complex, one of the players in that complex, are these NGOs that are actually being funded by the government. Um, tell me how that works and how it's basically being sort of kind of laundered through the um, sort of religious charities and things like that. I, at least I think that's what I read in your piece. I wonder if I got that right. Yeah. So for decades, uh, NGOs, including faith-based organizations, have been involved with refugee resettlement. 
And this is kind of the classic um, process of if someone is overseas and maybe they go to a refugee camp uh, and they're interviewed to go to the U.S. or some other country that resettles refugees and they are granted refugee uh, status, then the State Department uh, contracts with, gives grants to uh, these NGOs to kind of take it from there, uh, help them with their transportation, educate them on what they'll find in the U.S., uh, help them resettle in the U.S., find a job, kind of get them on their feet. Unfortunately, that has grown into a lot of additional downstream services and including what's happening at the southern border. And it is very clear that this the Biden administration has this open border agenda and they rely heavily on NGOs to make it happen. And so once these you know, migrants coming up and cross our border uh, have a brief encounter with border agents, the agents then turn them over to these NGOs uh, who process them uh, and helps them get transportation. And so that might be an airline ticket to the location of the alien's choice or a bus ticket. And so they're transported all over the country. The um, government, the federal government and, and state and local governments, it, it works all possible avenues, uh, receives hundreds of millions of dollars each year to do these services and through multiple departments. So within the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for most of our immigration system, uh, FEMA is um, has large amounts of money that it is giving to these NGOs. Uh, and the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, just announced within the past week a reprogramming of another more than $300 million uh, to go through FEMA for um, housing and, and feeding of, of these populations. And he said that's not going to be enough. Uh, it also, money goes through CBP, through uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, through the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, if you can, you know, if that makes sense, Justice Department, State Department, Labor Department, Health and Human Services. And so just for example, uh, one organization that's very involved in this, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, uh, in, in fiscal year 22, just the Department of Health and Human Services issued uh, Lutheran Immigrant, Immigration and Refugee Services $182.6 million in grants uh, for unaccompanied alien children. And so, but it, it's, it's not at all difficult to make the argument that this is smuggling. It is taking unaccompanied children and these migrants their last mile. Um, and so people need to realize when they're donating to these church organizations or NGOs, what the net result is um, crossing the southern border. Unfortunately, sex trafficking, child labor violations. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned, you mentioned unaccompanied minors, and there was that report in the New York Times of widespread exploitation of child labor. That's right. And, you know, as bad as the journey is to just get to the U.S., I mean, rape is common from the, the smugglers and the cartel members or worse. It's not as if the conditions for uh, the people coming here sudden, drastically improves once they cross the border. Often they have to pay off debts to those cartels, which means they are put into sex trafficking rings. 
um, or forced to work and in violating child labor conditions laws um, and turned up for with respect to these unaccompanied children they have to have a sponsor and the numbers are so high i mean just under the biden administration there's been over 371,000 unaccompanied alien children um, that have crossed the border and so sponsors need to um, take these children in and the numbers are so high the the administration's really had to lower their standards for vetting and who they allow um, to take in these kids and bad things happen when that when they do that so let, let's Let's propose a hypothetical. Propose a hypothetical. <clears throat> Biden administration, you know, Joe Biden is at his desk. He opens up the New York Times. He sees this horrible report on child labor, and says, "We actually want to stop this now." Has a crisis of conscience. Uh, what needs to be done to to either manage the situation at the border or to uh, interdict the cartel influence or whatever other? policy concerns you would have? So with respect to the unaccompanied alien children, there's a section of the law that was passed in 2008 and it needs to be repealed. Um, there was uh, introduced in, back in 2000 by Senator Dianne Feinstein and Representative Zoe Lofgren, both from California, uh, what was called the Unaccompanied Alien Child Protection Act. And what it did was um, basically encourage more parents to send their kids unaccompanied. And I mean, anyone who read the bill could figure out that that was going to be the result because it said, if you come as an unaccompanied child, you're going to be able to stay in the U.S., be put into removal proceedings. And as we talked, you know, that already takes years. Uh, you'll be given a guardian ad litem, uh, legal orientation for your, for your guardian, uh, and easier and faster ways to get special immigrant uh, juvenile visa status, green cards, and refugee protection. And so clearly what parents were going to do is send their kids across the border unaccompanied to gain a foothold in the U.S. in the hopes that over time they too could join in family re reunification in the U.S., um, that bill was introduced, every Congress didn't pass, didn't pass. Then in 2008, it was folded into a must-pass bill of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And strangely, that created a dichotomy of, based on nationality. If you are an unaccompanied child from Mexico or Canada, it says you're going to be returned to those countries. But if you're from anywhere else in the world, you get to stay here in the U.S. and pursue those benefits that I talked about. So because of this difference uh, between the treatment of national unaccompanied alien children from Canada and Mexico. Uh, is, is that why uh, it seems like so many of the unaccompanied minors who have been coming have been from Central America? Yes. Uh, it, it's the, the line is very easy to see. Once that bill passed in 2008, the numbers of unaccompanied alien children just skyrocketed. And um, unfortunately, it seems like the left has built an illegal immigration system on the backs of children because they have not stopped this. And if you argue against it, then they label you as being inhumane. Um, and then what happens is after a few years, the left argues, well, they need to have some sort of amnesty status, DACA, et cetera. And uh, then eventually they'll say, well, we need to give them green cards because they came in as unaccompanied children. Well, that's how they built the system. I mean, it's very perverse. 
And so this whole section of the TVPRA needs to be repealed. Um, in the alternative, at least get rid of that dichotomy so that no matter what country you come from, you're going to be returned there to reunite with your family. And unfortunately, that is in what is the bill that's going to be considered on, uh, voted on today in the House. It does close that loophole. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on, you know, when I've heard people say, well, one way to uh, address this problem of illegal immigration is to make it easier to migrate legally, um, to immigrate le- or uh, be a legal immigrant. So that's an interesting question. I haven't given that much thought. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, your your um, your thoughts on that issue. But also I'm interested in how you respond to people who say, you know, you're just you just don't like immigrants or we just conservatives don't just we just don't we don't want illegal immigrants in the country. We don't want immigrants in the country. We want to shut the border down and close the country off to everyone. I mean, obviously, that's not what's happening here, but I would love to hear your official response to that kind of thing. So we deserve and as a sovereign nation, we should have a lawful and orderly and a manageable immigration system year over year. The migrants make a calculation if it's easier and faster to come in lawfully or the illegal route. And if it's easier and faster to do it illegally, many do. Um, and the, the, one of the most um, loud voices you'll hear in opposition to that are people who lawfully immigrated themselves. They took the time, the effort, the money, and the patience to do it lawfully. Because if your first act in coming here um, is illegal, then you know it's a slap in the face to this country and our laws. Um, our lawful system is needlessly complicated. And people often say it's the second most complicated set of laws after the tax code, and it, that is correct. It doesn't need to be that way. Every rule that's written there are waivers, there are exceptions, and it's really an immigration attorney's employment dream because it creates work for them uh, and racks up a lot of um, attorney's fees. And quite frankly, many of these benefits are not that complicated and immigrant applicants shouldn't have to pay so much money uh, and hire an attorney to, to apply. Uh, we need to get to the point where it is simple to apply and if you are eligible for the benefit you are granted the benefit expeditiously and if you are not eligible you are denied um and you know you get your decision and can move on with your life and that's just not the way it is uh but because we're always playing on the illegal immigration field so to speak and having to deal with that mess we never get to how best to reform our lawful system. And right now the calculation is before before you can before you can even have the before you can even have the debate over the legal immigration system, the chaos at the border has to yes. be stopped. Yeah. Would be kind of how I how Exactly. I, yeah. We need to put out the fire that's on the border and then maintain that security. Uh, and then we can deal with the legal system and how that how to reform that.
All right, uh, Laura, before we let you go, is there anything else that you would like to uh, promote that either you or your colleagues have been working on? Uh, yes, there's right now, Secretary Mayorkas keeps talking about uh, that the administration has created lawful pathways, quote unquote, um, and that you know, migrants just need to follow their lawful pathway. Um, in fact, it's not lawful. What he's doing is violating a section in the Immigration Act that's called humanity. It's called parole. It's not parole in the, in the criminal sense, as, as many people are familiar with, but immigration parole allows you to come into the country without having um, a visa. The, the notion is if you don't have time to get a visa, for example, if you have needed a medical emergency or you have to testify in a criminal hearing as a witness, um, then you can be paroled in. Congress has um, stated the intention here is that it be rarely used on a case-by-case -case basis temporarily. And once your need is completed, then you revert back to your prior status. This administration is mass paroling in tens of thousands of people every month and still calling that quote unquote on a case by case basis. It, is, it simply defies credibility. And um, they've got about 10 different mass parole programs. It's, that's what he's calling lawful pathways. And yet the pathway is not lawful, nor aliens who use it. Uh, does it make them lawful? And so uh, it, it's, it's important for your audience to understand that that's just simply not true, no matter how many times he repeats it, and he says it a lot. All right, well, thanks again to Laura Rees of the Heritage Foundation for joining us. We will link to some of her and her colleagues' work in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.